All right, so Paul's been uh, going through this idea of, um, I think the main theme of Romans would be the gospel. He repeats that several times. He talks about how he's wanting to preach the gospel. Uh, and we mentioned how this is kind of a uh, uh, preacher support letter. He says, I'm wanting to go to Spain. I'm going to come by you guys. And if you can help me on the way, it'd be great. And I'm going to go there and preach the gospel. And here's what I'm going to preach. So unlike today, when somebody sends a letter and says, I'm going to preach the gospel, we pretty much know already what that means. But I think he's kind of going into detail of what he's uh, planning there. But then, speaking to them, he's got this idea of explaining who needs the gospel. Who needs this righteousness of God? Uh, So... He starts out in chapter 1, and remember we were talking about the them and the they, and I think that's kind of a general collective for bad people, those that are unrighteous. They do this and they do that. And he gets to chapter 2, and he starts saying, you. So I think, I think for the most part, or maybe in general we'd be looking at the them and they as the Gentiles, but I don't think that would be totally exclusive. But then we get to chapter 2, we talk about the you, probably more so to the Jews, but again, I don't think that's exclusive. I think it's the whole group. But as he narrows in on the Jews, it becomes clear that uh, they need this gospel just as well. So, we were having trouble from Texas getting our signal of the Jews and the Gentiles, but I'm going to keep working that. <laughs> anyway, um, so just remember which, which section you're in in case, we get, in case I get mixed up. So, we get into the first part of chapter 3, and it's a little, uh, I don't know, the wording is a little difficult, I think, to try to decipher some of these things. And it might be just the way that they talked or the way that they wrote. I don't know if there'd be a big difference. Is there a big difference in the way you talk and the way you write? But here he's using some terms that you might expect to mean a certain thing. For example, he says, you know, what then? Well, when you hear that, what do you, what do you expect that that means? probably some type of objection or an argument. You know, what then? Or, or what do you expect then? Or what, or what should we do then? Or what does that mean? And, and also the other one, uh, you know, what, what do we say then? So it might be something like, well, what would you expect? But we do that in our language. If there's certain phrases that you would use, people would automatically know what kind of statement you're making. I mean, it could be something blatantly obvious. Like if I said, knock, knock, you know that we're talking about a joke. Or if I said, once upon a time, you would know that we're talking about a fairy tale. Well, I think when Paul says these, these catchphrases in here, we know that he's trying to answer some objections that would be possible, uh, possibly coming up to what he is telling them. So maybe some of the difficulty might be determining 
when Paul is quoting the objection and when he is switched over to answering the, the objection. I think we get that in some other books as well, where it's like, okay, is he repeating what they're thinking or is he, you know, going on to the next point at this time? So the, it mentions the wrath of God and it mentions the righteousness of God. And, and in both cases, it uses the term, those will be revealed. You know, the wrath of God is going to be revealed to all unrighteousness. And then the, the righteousness of God is going to be revealed to those that follow him as well. So let's look chapter 3, the first uh, eight verses. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So he starts out, what advantage has the Jew? So he just got done telling the Jews that you're all sinners and you need the gospel. So they might be like, uh, question Paul, then what was the advantage of the law? I thought that was, I thought that was our answer. And he's going to address that but how would you address that? What was the advantage of the law? Was there any advantage? Because there appears that they're in the same boat now. He obviously starts out with great in every respect. Okay, so there was something, but what was it? advantages. It's curious that Paul does this a few times, but he'll say something like, first of all, this. But there wasn't a second, third, or fourth. Well, they have a lineage to all of that came again in the Okay, so it, is, it appears that this advantage that they had was kind of a, uh, I don't know, a personal 
uh, choosing thing that God had, had given to them. But when it comes to the fact of salvation, they're no better off than the Gentiles. So yeah, it's almost, it almost makes it more, what? More guilty. You, you had even more and you still didn't use it the right way. That may be a little misleading because using it the right way, what does that mean? Could they save themselves with it? No. Problem is they didn't even get close. <laughs> they didn't even use what they had to, to get them looking forward to the Messiah. They used it like for their own personal benefit and as a, as a crutch, well, we've got the law. We can, we can lean on that. You know. So that's what he's getting to in answering those things. <coughs> okay, so th- I think we're dealing with potential objections. And he's saying uh, the, the objection would be, you're saying the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles. And it's like, so he's, he's saying, no, you, you had some advantages there in getting this. But that doesn't save you. You still need Jesus. It could get you, it could help you and get you to Jesus a lot easier if you would follow it. But that would be up to you. So this what then statement, I guess, is the one I was referring to. When he says what then, it comes up several times. Um, It'll be even again in verse 9. You know, are we better off than they? And he, start, he deals with that some more in that. So he talks about then uh, the, in verse 3, what then, if some did not believe, their unbelief did not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So how would that argument go? How would the unfaithfulness or the ones that didn't believe, how would that nullify the faithfulness of God? Doesn't that seem a little backwards? I wasn't faithful, therefore God's faithfulness is, is void. How does, so, so how do they make an argument out of that? Is that making any sense? Tommy? It, it seems like the point would be that if Jesus was the one that was promised to Jewish people, he was promised to suffer. Why are so many Jews not believe? Okay. If Jews don't believe, he says, that doesn't nullify the promise of God when you'll say later on in Psalm 11 that Israel was always a river within a river. That, that not all Abraham seen was blessed because of, it was the faithful within that. Okay, so the unbelief of the Jews doesn't nullify God's promise, saying that a lot of the Jews didn't believe, but that doesn't change that doesn't change the promise. Okay. Yeah, I would look at that maybe a little differently, but probably probably not a lot differently. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're finally getting our Jews and our Gentiles in their proper <laughs> Proper places. Yes, Luke. I guess I understood it. I was thinking it was more that. I was I don't think this is in opposition to what I'm trying to say. 
that it's supposed to be in the covenant. God would do his part and Jesus would do their part. When the Jews did not do their part, the question comes up, what happens to everything the covenant is supposed to do? So if the Jews don't do their part, does it nullify the righteousness of God? And the answer is no, because God has a plan in which he sends a Jew who will do what the Jews are supposed to do, and so he completes his part. Yes. Okay. I think I'm tracking with that as well. Uh, so it's the same type of It's still through Christ, and they still need to follow that. Other, other thoughts or corrections of what I just said? <laughs> it doesn't mean that God had given up on the Jews. In other words, or they, they may be thinking this also. It's like Paul saying, no, you're guilty. And they're like, well, then what do we do? Is God just... You know, is he casting us out and there's no hope for us anymore? He's saying, no, we still have this fulfillment coming. Yes. Exclusive. We have the law. We have the connection with God. We have all these promises. We have everything. And this is upsetting that app card badly. <laughs> and, and it's going to take a little bit to understand that. Yeah, I think, I think for the typical Jew, faithfulness of God would mean he's going to save Israel. And Paul's now saying, nope, you, you still need saved just like everybody else. And they're like, well, then God's unfaithful. But it's not measured by the way they were measuring it. Other thoughts? So what is God faithful to? They thought it meant 
to them. Which, no, they thought more than that. They thought it was, they thought it was saving them regardless, I think, would have been it. God was faithful to them, but what, is, what would you say God is faithful to? He's faithful to his promises, of course. He's faithful to his character, which would include righteousness, Brad over here, righteousness and just, justness. So he is faithful to that, and that's what Paul's pointing out. Your failure in the law is, is actually showing God's faithfulness. The true Israel that we see in some passages. Exactly. So he is is certainly faithful to what he has promised. They just misunderstood the promise. Okay, and he gets into that a little bit more even. We go into that again, or, you know, it's brought up there even in the first verse, but what advantage is the Jew or the benefit of circumcision? But that's exactly right. That was the, I mean, that was the sign of, of heaven. That was the sign of salvation. You know, the Jew thought somebody that was circumcised couldn't possibly go to hell. So, they, they had misunderstood the faithfulness of God. So the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, but that doesn't mean that God is no longer, no longer faithful or that God has nullified his covenant or that he's not keeping his promises. Uh, the faithfulness of God doesn't mean he can't judge you, or in this case, doesn't mean he can't judge the Jews. That would be the opposite of his faithfulness. I think the Jew had the thought that, yeah, they, they do sin. Yeah, we all know we, we sin. So you Jews, I have to make sure I'm pointing the right way, would see that law and say, yeah, we have all this law and you can't keep it perfectly, so we do sin. But there's a way in there that we can take care of that. You know, you can, you can uh, sacrifice the, the goat or whatever it is, and then you won't be held accountable anymore. To that. So in their mind, the system, the law, would justify them. And now they're finding out, no, we were viewing the law the wrong way. We were, we were worshiping the law and not the lawgiver. <clears throat> Alright, any other comments, thoughts through that? So if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? So there's that term again. What, what does that mean? Well, what, what can you conclude from that? 
and the objection may be what he's looking for or, or responding to in this, in this case. And that would be, well, if unrighteousness makes God look more righteous, then we need more unrighteousness, right? Then God will really be righteous. He can really show his faithfulness. And I think Paul's, you know, response there, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. Does your, you have any other translations that I'm speaking in human terms? Is there anything? Human point of view. Human way. Human way. <coughs> what is it? Yeah. NIV uses human heart. Okay. So what would be some term we would use today and not be similar to that? What's Paul saying here? Layman's terms. What 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 else? What we is there anything else? I think he's I think he's devil's advocate. Devil's advocate, maybe. Yeah, that'd be kind of a thing. Or, or I almost get the impression he's like I'm just talking like an idiot. I'm just you know talking like a fool. That's how that's how low he thinks they're going with this. If you're going to make some comment like that, you know I'm speaking in human terms now. I'm down on your level. Um, it's kind of the idea that I get. I don't know if, if that's totally accurate or not, but he's certainly giving some indication that this isn't even close to what is accurate. Would another statement be there's no wisdom in this? There's what? Would another statement be there is no wisdom in this? There's no wisdom in this? Yeah. Something like that, or, yeah, being foolish. It's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's a ridiculous statement. That's what Paul's saying right there, I'm sure. Um, so the argument may be, well, it, you know, if this unrighteousness some way magnifies God's righteousness, you know, then it's, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for God to be wrathful against this unrighteousness because it's actually helping the situation would kind of be the argument I guess you could make from that. Paul ain't buying it. Other thoughts on that? So he mentions the uh, verse 8 and why not say as we are reported by some let us do evil that good may come. Well, their condemnation is just. I, I don't know if it's, you look at that passage there, I don't think Paul even addressed the, uh, the objection, did he? He's like, why don't we say this? And he's like, let's go on to the next point. I think it's pretty obvious, so. He just skips it. So now what do we do about it? What, you know, he, I think he ironed it out. He made it pretty clear. All right, you're all in the same boat. Uh, you had the law, but that's not going to save you uh, because you broke the law. So now you're still in the same boat as everyone else, the unrighteous, the ungodly. 
Um, so he goes on to that. We just uh, we skipped over the verse four. The quote. Any comment on that? He just is kind of given a proof there of. Uh, the statement that he's made, rather, you know, is let God be found true no matter what, uh, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. I don't know if there's, you know, some deeper meaning to that or context that I'm missing, but it seems like he's just using that, proving the points that he's making to them. He does that again in the next section with a combination of uh, quotes. So one of the things, you know, it's like, what do we do about it? And that's what he's going to be turning um, or going into, especially in the next or after, I'm sorry, verse chapter or verse 21 and beyond. but what, what is the plan and how, it, it, maybe it kind of ties in with some of the arguments. They're, they're kind of doing the circular reasoning thing and they're kind of making, making excuses, or at least Paul is addressing what the potential excuses or, or objections are. Um, but the solution ultimately is the gospel. You guys had the law, it was pointing to that, you should have been aware of that and ready for that. The Gentiles have the same gospel. That was the promise back to Abraham that Christ is coming, the gospel of Christ. And that brings up, you know, the issue of how that, how does that work? And maybe even for us, that would be a question. How, how exactly does that work? You know, like mechanically or um, what are the details or how... Um, you know, we, we know that it's trust in God and those types of things, but you realize that God created us, we sinned against Him, and then He provides the method of having that sin removed, and we can be justified in that. You got a you got a system at your work that does that, and people mess up, and you got a way <laughs> that you provide. I mean, do you see how that's not a normal thing in our human world? So, how exactly does it work? I don't know exactly how it works. I don't think they did either. And I think that may be some of the objections. Like, well, how, how can that be? You know, or why is why isn't it good that we're sinning? Because that shows God's, uh, you know, faithfulness and His His glory, His justification. So I guess I would say to that, I don't really need to know exactly how it works, as far as, you know, how does a how does a Creator and one that is ultimately righteous accept some sacrifice? and take care of my sin, you know, to make it go away. Um, There's a lot of ways I think we say that process in a concise little 
thing, but think about it. If you recognize how bad, how devastating sin is, is it just that simple? Does God just like, oh, well, this is clean, or you know, I'll just overlook that? Or, no, it has to be paid for. It has to be justified or, or something. Comes to mind here that uh, man's unrighteousness, of course, does not make God look more righteous. It actually brings a reproach on him as, as, as we do that. So there's some reading from this event called section really hard. And I think it's going to get the chew on it the way we have. Uh, we can go home and read it about 30 more times. But. Uh, our, our unrighteousness. He, we were made for His glory, and this is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, add that to your things to chew on as you, as you think about this. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very good. And fortunately, after we get done with this section, the rest of Romans is real easy. So we. <laughs> <laughs> There's never a, well, it's okay to sin. You know, well, it makes God look better. Or, you know, I don't agree to cover it. Or, or, or nothing. There's no, there's no scenario where it's like, okay, let's go on sinning. You know, that grace may abound or whatever it may be. So you're exactly right. Other thoughts? Yes. Chapter 4, verse 17. Nope, 5. 5? Yes. Okay, very good. Other thoughts? Yeah, Brad? Judgment on Israel 
also demonstrated his faithfulness, his righteousness, and even his generosity. It wasn't that, you know, it's the exact same point. It's like trying to get them to do what they needed to be doing. Good, good comment. Other thoughts? Yeah, go ahead, Lloyd. Uh, I think you're saying grace is not limitless. And so at some point, you're going to have to be responsible for your actions. Or you're going, I don't know if it's proper to say you're going to run out of grace, but it's uh, a precarious situation for sure. I, I, I agree. I understand what you're trying to say. It's, uh, yes, there is grace. But you cannot take advantage of it. You can accept it when necessary and needed, but you can't use it as an excuse. So then you've gone beyond, and at that point, I think you've gone beyond the grace. You're into another realm at that, at that time. Okay. Um... Yeah, so he said in, uh, he said here somewhere, he said something somewhere about lying in the middle of verse 34. I'm sorry? Though every man be found a liar, as written now, maybe, and then he mentions it again. Oh, verse 7, verse 7 is mentions it again. But if but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, then why am I to be judged as a sinner? I think it's the exact same argument we make and rephrased using lie as the generic sin. So if I'm telling a lie, you know if I'm just telling a lie, that's a sin. But if that's you know causing God to be glorified, then how come I'm still being judged? I thought it was I was doing a good thing. I was glorifying or making God be glorified. So, all in the same line. All right, any other thoughts on the first eight verses there? All right, so nine, uh, nine through 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. And it, pay attention to the, the none and the all throughout this section. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So obviously the start of that, he repeats the, the, the point of this. Are we better than they? Not at all, for we already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So you might, 
if you want to pick it apart, try to figure out who's the we and the they and the, you know, is he, is he backing away? Now we, the Jews, or we, you know, in what sense is that? I don't get real caught up in, in those things. I think that's be a general way that we would speak today. You know, hey, are we better off? <laughs> you know, you and me, or any of us, or whatever the scenario. And the answer is, regardless of who you want to count as the we and they, no, both Jews and the Greeks are all under sin. So what about that phrase, they're all under sin? Is that different than saying what he said before, all have sin? But then he says now they're all under sin. Any thought on why why you would say that? Maybe uh, Josh over here. <coughs> yeah, right? The uh, knowledge of it being shown to them, the knowledge of sin through law. The knowledge? Of sin through the law, it, it, I think they forgot that it was meant to convict them. If it was about obedience, um, we see that no one could do it anyway. Right. They don't necessarily have an excuse because it's God's law, so it was brought about that knowledge of the sin was given by God directly to them. I, I think they're without excuse. Okay, I, I think we're on the right track there. I would say that they are condemned by the law. As opposed to what they would have thought was, yeah, I've sinned, but that wasn't a big deal necessarily. Why not? Because, well, I got this goat, I cut throat and put it on the altar, and now the sin is gone. So, all have sinned is not quite the same as saying, if you all under sin, which is a, like a power, a force, a something. Okay. Yeah, really. He seems to be underscoring it again that all have sin. Well, he's answering the question in the children's Bible says, Are we Jew, are we Jews, but any better off? But he answers the question in that Jews and Greeks are in sin. And then he goes on and say, No one is righteous, so he sort of underscores that. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a cost to sin. We talked about the fact that there's grace and forgiveness. There's still a cost to sin. Okay. Forgiveness and grace, yes, but David was forgiven of his sin, but there was still a cost. Consequences. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there may be a little bit to that, you know, the under sin, maybe just the way he says that kind of hurts a little more than, well, you sinned. Well, you you you're still under that sin. It's not like, yeah, I sinned, but I sacrificed a goat, and now I'm good. No, even if you did that, you're still under that punishment that you deserve because of sin, under that power. All right, other thoughts? Yes, Carrie? Brad? Would he not be um, talking about that they are no longer under that old law? that now a new law has come um, and they are not willing to put that old law away. Is he not talking about that? The being under sin? Yeah. 
Because if they, they wanted to stay under that, that would be sin. Oh, so you, he's saying, yeah, if you stay there, you're under sin. Well, everybody's under sin. Under sin. The Gentiles are too because they haven't accepted Christ yet. Right. And so if the Jews stay there, they're under sin as well. Right. It may encompass all that. I may not be understanding exactly what you're saying, but I see how... I don't, I don't think that's exclusive. Is that... Would you agree? I mean, it's not exclusively saying just to the Jews, you're under sin. I think he's saying everybody's under this sin thing, but you're making it worse trying to stay under the old law. Something like that? Okay, yes. Uh, maybe it's along the lines of the thought of we still being slaves to sin. So they're saying, well, the law gives us an out, but God's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to do good, not have to have the out. It's just the whole point of like Malachi when he says, stop sacrificing. I want you, I want your hearts. I don't want your sacrifice because you, you've decided to sin and now you're going to make up for it. I want the original relationship that I was having in the first place. Okay. I, I agree with that. And we agree, I think the sacrifice doesn't ultimately take care of anything. They thought, I think that was their belief that the sacrifice. Oh, we're all good, but Christ died for something, and then Paul had to reevaluate his whole plan because he's like, uh, I don't understand why we would need Christ if the goat actually did the job. And it seems like maybe this is the conclusion that he's been driving at the whole time, because um, he says, "Are are uh, do we have any advantage the way the NIV reads, or uh, are we better than they?" Um, so I think Paul's. Speaking from the Jewish perspective there and saying, are we Jews any better than they? No. And that's what he's been trying to get across the whole time. So in summary, no, we're not better than them. We are all under the power of sin. Um, and sin is not just this uh, event. It is, it is a, a force, maybe a spirit that moves through and um, is uh, influencing all of us, and we're under its power when we uh, don't obey God and we don't accept Him. Exactly. So that verse is very interesting, the word that is used there for better or advantage. <laughs> Apparently that's an odd word. I don't know what you would compare it to in English, but it's hard to translate that word. You have a footnote beside the word better? It either means better or what? Worse. <laughs> it, can you think of a more opposite? I mean, the word either means better or it means worse. Now, fortunately, in the context of the argument, the conclusion is the same. But is he asking, are we better off? Or is he asking, are we worse? And the answer is, you're all the same. So... It's nice that the conclusion nullifies the question of the translation there, but that is an interesting word. <coughs> it apparently can be used either way. <laughs> That'd be like, what would, what would it be like? Uh, I, I could care less or I couldn't care less. 
Means the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, one of them is a incorrect form of that, but you're you're right. People use it both ways. It means the same thing. Don't, don't say which one you think is incorrect, though. <laughs> well, I think it's obvious, but maybe I won't. <laughs> that would be like if the word love meant it could be used either way. It could mean that you really like somebody or that you really hate them. And it's like, oh, I love you. <laughs> you know, that could be used either way. Wow. So this word apparently can be used either way. And we think that's weird until we start studying English. Nothing weird at all. All right, so he goes through this uh, collection of quotes, and it's from various places. I mean, several of the Psalms, and I think even some other books, and probably a lot of other ideas that aren't direct quotes from the, from the old law. And it's just saying everybody is in the same boat. Everybody has sinned. Everybody, you know, there's none that's righteous to the point of, of being saved. So... Yes, Tom. The first quote is from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which are basically the same psalm. And it begins in a way that everybody would recognize. The fool has said he's starting this from God. He doesn't quote that part, but then he quotes the rest of the first three verses of each of those. And it's a sobering call to think that everyone at some moment has lived as if there is no God. As if there's no God to pray, there's no God to who we're accountable. We've all been that way in some Yes, and it's back to what we were talking about earlier. Just if we understand the gravity, the, you know, how sobering it is of what sin actually means, but that, that helps put that in perspective. You know, the fool says there's no God, and this is the same type of thing. So like, then he ultimately at the end identifies the problem in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right. So he goes through th- several things in this. You know, he talks about there's no, none, no, not one. Then he goes into the, uh, the tongue or the mouth uh, aspect and the speech. And there's a few verses about that. He goes on with their feet and their paths. And then no fear of God before their eyes. Um, any other thoughts on those? I think Paul's using these to just drive home the point that he's been making. It is interesting that these were written to whom? <laughs> the Israelites. <laughs> right, so I think hammering home that point, you guys are still trying to say this law, you know, gets us out of any uh, consequences, but even if you look back at your law, it says this. You know, there is none. In verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed. Does that mean zip it? Well, in a way, yes. But I think uh, it's kind of a, this is almost like a judge courtroom scene, and every mouth is going to be closed. It's like God's going to lay down the law, and what are you going to say? Nothing. You have nothing left to argue, nothing left to say that will make any difference with this. So every mouth will be closed. Um, That all the world may be accountable to God. 
Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. By the works of what law? Moses' law. Any law. I, I mean, I don't know that we know for sure what he's referring to. Probably referring to the law of Moses because he's talking to the Jews, kind of indicating that way. But I think it's clear his point is there is no law that's going to you know, nullify God's plan or get you out of those consequences. Thank you very much for your class.